New government regulations, which were created to protect employees, are actually hurting them. It's regulation after regulation. You know, until the government understands that they have to create an environment suitable for us to keep growing, we're going to stay in this recession a long time. The federal government has blocked efforts to expand the ride-sharing. The owners say the restaurant has succumbed to the crush of government regulations. We have seen an unprecedented explosion of new regulatory $1.8 trillion. That's how much business and bus companies to close. I think there are outdated regulations that need to be changed. There is red tape that needs to be cut. The regulations are... There's a regulation that doesn't make any sense. Why do you keep... Is this really the best we can do? This is Free Lunch, the podcast of the Federalist Society's Regulatory Transparency Project. All expressions of opinion on this podcast are those of the speakers. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another Federalist Society Teleforum podcast call for the Regulatory Transparency Project. First off, stop what you're doing. Go to the RTP website at regproject.org, R-E-G project.org. Once there, you can subscribe to receive updates as we post new content, and you can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. This free lunch podcast is entitled Laws, Regulations, and Regulatory Dark Matter. The plan is to explore questions such as, well, what are the distinctions? What is regulatory dark matter? How does it affect the economy? Is regulatory dark matter consistent with the principles of separation of powers, checks and balances, and public transparency? Is Congress fully or adequately aware of any of this? My name is Devin Westhill. I'm the director of the RTP and the host of the Free Lunch Podcast. If you're a first-timer to a Federalist Society program, we welcome you and let you know that the Federalist Society takes no position on particular legal or public policy initiatives, and therefore all expressions of opinion on this call and all of our free lunch podcasts are those of the featured speakers. Today, we're very fortunate to have with us as our featured speaker, Clyde Wayne Cruz. Now, that's spelled C-R-E-W-S, so no relation to the senator from Texas as far as we know. Wayne is Vice President for Policy and Director of Technology Studies at the Competitive Enterprise Institute in Washington, D.C. His work explores the impact of government regulation on numerous areas. Wayne is the author of both the yearly report, 10,000 Commandments, an annual snapshot of the federal regulatory state, as well as Mapping Washington's Lawlessness, a preliminary inventory of regulatory dark matter. And, most importantly, I have it on good authority that Wayne can do a handstand on a skateboard. More about Wayne, his work, and his extraordinary talents can be found on the Competitive Enterprise Institute website at cei.org and on the RTP website at regproject.org. All right. I'm going to turn the mic over to Wayne to explain laws, regulations, and regulatory dark matter, after which Wayne has graciously agreed to take any and all questions in Q&A. So, as always, please be thinking about those questions during his remarks. Okay, thanks, Wayne, for speaking with us on the Free Lunch Podcast today. I'm giving you the mic. It's all yours. Great. Uh, Devin, thank you so much for having me, and I appreciate everybody tuning in. You know, if you go outside right now and you look at the sun, you look at the stars tonight, or you watch next year's next week, month's total solar eclipse, you're not seeing much of the universe. Even when you look at all of the stars out in space, you're seeing less than 5% of what the universe really consists of. The bulk of it is not the things that are all lit up, but so-called dark matter. 
And it turns out that there's a little bit of an analogy to that with respect to the regulatory state. And I just want to preface this what, with these remarks with saying whatever deconstructing the administrative, is, administrative state is, this is the first time in over 20 years an administration has been talking about doing something like we've seen. Now, we were having earlier discussions that the regulatory state is something that is both uh, generated by both parties. The Republicans have brought us antitrust laws, the EPA, Consumer Product Safety Commission, Department of uh, Homeland Security, the TSA and its nudie scanners and all that sort of thing. Both parties has, have helped create the regulatory state. We're in an environment now uh, that's even more so than Reagan. When Reagan came in and set up the regulatory review process back in 1981, pages in the Federal Register and numbers of rules both dropped by more than a third. And I'm here to tell you that at least so far in this year, numbers of regulations have dropped by more than that in terms of new rules and pages in the Federal Register. And as it happens, and we might talk about this a bit in Q&A, but the administration is putting out its newest, and it's late, the, these things are always seem to be late, but the newest unified agenda of federal regulations tomorrow, which is going to provide some insight on this two regulations out for every one in and the regulatory cost budget and things of that sort. But to get going here... I'm going to give you some negative numbers in terms of the scope of regulations and especially the alarming situation of what I've taken to calling regulatory dark matter. Now those are all the guidances, the bulletins, notices, circulars, interpretations, and all that sort of thing. But I'm going to be optimistic about how to fix this stuff. And the reason is you know, just two people standing next to each other don't see the same rainbow. You're both looking through different raindrops. And when it comes to the costs and benefits of regulations, it's a very similar kind of situation. I don't look at the regulatory state or administrative state as a dry issue. I think this regulatory debate that we're having in the modern era echoes the fiscal cliff debate. That we're, you know, we're about to have the uh, uh, budget ceiling uh, hit again, too. All of these debates are really over the size and scope of government, and we've got conflicts of visions over government's role in the economy, over separation of powers, over executive overreach, and even deeper than all that, the fundamental relationship of the individual to the state, you know, the principle of statism versus individualism. So for me, the bias that colors all of the regwork I do that Devin mentioned is an effort to extend institutions of liberty that make large-scale free enterprise possible. And later on, you'll see why I say large-scale. To us, if, if you know Fred Smith, who is CEI's founder, he's always said capitalism doesn't just make the world richer, but fairer and safer and cleaner. And when we run up into problems with a growing regulatory state, I always think it's, it's important to emphasize that even capitalism itself is still too young, it's still too new for us to have gotten all these questions right. And that's the source of my optimism about this. Okay, but now to get into the bad news for a little bit. It's long been the case that there are more regulations than laws. I, I, I think a lot of you listening in know that, and we can touch on some of that. But increasingly, $20 trillion debt aside, and we're about to have that this year, and we're also about to get back to a $4 trillion spending budget, Despite the spending debate, which is what we hear about most of the time, 
to me, if we're missing regulations, and now especially regulatory dark matter, we're missing government's biggest effect in the economy. And lately, Washington has gone supernova prior to the last few uh, few months. So first, let me say a little bit about the costs of regulations that we know about, kind of a burst transmission of what's in the 10,000 Commandments report. You know, Devin mentioned we do this annual report. Gosh, I guess now I've been doing this for over 20 years, which means y'all are getting old. But <laughs> I started this thing at uh, back in the days of Citizens for a Sound Economy, and I did a version for the Chamber Foundation. I've done it at CEI. I did it at the Cato Institute. But 10,000 Commandments was basically my response to, you know, we always get the federal budget each year, but I wanted to get kind of a grasp on not the taxes we pay, but the hidden taxes we pay. And that's generally government intervention in, in the economy on the business side, issuing regulations or just controlling sectors without even uh, issuing direct regulations. But in a nutshell, there are a few things from that uh, recent 10,000 commandments is this past year, the Federal Register, which is the daily depository of all the rules and regulations, topped 97,000 pages. The highest it had ever been before was was 82,000 pages. So it, it's, a, it, it's been a huge growth in terms of the numbers of pages in the, in, in the Federal Register. Now, it's not the greatest measure, and there are a lot of reasons why in, in 10,000 Commandments I talk about it, but it's one of the few things we have. But when you have a register that's 20% higher, that jumps 20% in one year, that's telling you something pretty significant. And under the Obama administration, of of the 10 highest ever Federal Register page counts, seven of those came during the Obama administration. So I think it has some significance in that respect. And the cost of all of these regulations, we could do a whole different segment on this, but the the federal government fights with itself over the cost of regulations, and it's very difficult to get any new any new answers on cost. I mentioned the unified agenda coming out tomorrow, and there's one other report that's the OMB's report to Congress on benefits and cost. There are over three thousand regulations that are issued every year. Last year, Obama had thirty-eight hundred. He had again that was another twenty percent increase over the prior over the prior year. But huge amounts of of regulations. But of those that come through, last year in the OMB's report to Congress on costs and benefits, there are only there are less than two dozen regulations that have both cost and benefit analysis. So if you think about that, three thousand regulations going through, more than 3,000 regulations going through, but less than two dozen with a cost-benefit analysis. Now, there are another handful that will have a cost analysis alone, but in a lot of ways, we're flying blind when, when we're regulating. And of course, in terms of overall cost, I have been using a lot of government studies. There are very few private sector studies. You'd be surprised. And one of the things I'm working to do is getting getting more private sector parties to weigh in. There's some that do a good job, like the Auto Dealers Association and things like that. You can get cost of specific rules sometimes, you know, say a Dodd-Frank rule or something like that. But overall, I think my baseline in terms of the cost of regulations is $1.9 trillion. There's estimates from the National Association of Manufacturers of $2.2 trillion. The Mercatus Center has a great study that reckons $4 trillion, That, In other words, if we'd stopped regulations at 1980 levels, we would have a $4 trillion larger economy. 
all of those, so there are estimates out there like that. The baseline I use, I say I don't want to go below, is $1.9 trillion a year. But even that is half the level of federal taxes that we pay. And it's great. In, in fact, it's greater than the individual income tax plus the corporate tax. But the, if you add those two together, that's still less than the cost of regulation. But regulatory spending, $1.9 trillion, is half the level of federal spending itself, which is $4 trillion. If it were a country, regulation would be the ninth largest. If you were to let it all trickle down to the family level, it would be 15000 per family, roughly. In terms of the numbers of rules, and now we're going to get – shortly we're going to get here into a little bit of the dark matter – 3,800 rules, but meanwhile, Congress last year had only passed 211 laws. So in terms of the pace, Congress is the, – the agencies are issuing 18 times the level of laws that Congress does. Now, a lot of agency rules are just minutiae. They're not big things. But the same is true of the 200 laws that Congress passes. There are a lot of post office renamings and things like that. So – that's the countable stuff, or some of the countable stuff from 10,000 Commandments. I think more important is what we don't know, the cost of regulations that we don't know. And in the, the pen and phone era that we went through, we just we realized there's a lot. I had just mentioned to you the, that there's very little cost-benefit analysis actually done. There's less than half a percent of all regulations do get a cost-benefit analysis. But it turns out in terms of economic costs of regulations, like antitrust or energy regulations, things of that sort, we leave out those economic costs of regulations. And, you know, th this is a federal society group. If you think about it, everything that was still in the government's hands prior to the uh, progressive era, say air sheds, water sheds, spectrum, uh, ocean sheds, all of that is still in government hands. So government is preempted kind of liberalization in these areas and property rights in these areas, those kinds of costs are left out. Also, another cost I attribute to regulation is the cost of benefits. You know, the things that we presume to regulate, whether it's privacy or safety or financial stability, uh, food safety, all of those are actually forms of wealth, and you need markets to enhance those too, not just not just regulations. And then, of course, there are job costs of regulations, and then we have poor processes by which we do regulations. You know, we talk about the Administrative Procedure Act, and boy, all of these rules need to go through and get uh, public notice and comment, and a notice of proposed rulemaking before there's a final rule, but. A new GAO report says, no, they, for a third of rules, whether it's major or minor, they never got a notice of proposed rulemaking. So we're about to talk about dark matter a little bit more, but if, even with the rules that are supposed to be above board, they're not going through the, uh, the, normal, uh, the normal processes or the processes that re they're required to. Now, dark matter, the, the, those are regulations. There are 3,000 regulations. When... Obama, when President Obama spoke often of using his pen and phone, he often talked about going around Congress. He said, I've got a pen, I've got a phone, I can, we can do things on our own, we can do things unilaterally. And I, you know, I was doing the 10,000 Commandments report at that time, and I was, hearing, I was hearing these things being said. And there were prominent examples of Obama doing this. He, he did it with respect to the immigration program and deferred action. Um, for uh, on immigration, on the even on Obamacare, which has blown up this week in terms of the repeal, you might recall that in 2013, 
in July, the Treasury Department issued uh, issued a, a ruling. Uh, well, it was actually just a, a <laughs> this is what I mean by dark matter. It was a memorandum saying that the employer mandate was going to be withheld and the, the individual penalty, therefore, wasn't going to kick in. Later that year, President Obama came out with a press conference. He said, all of those policies that are illegal under Obamacare, actually, we're going to let them continue on. So the question came up of, the executive branch changing the statute or changing the meaning of a statute, that was a prominent example of of, of the president going around um, what the law said. But I started wondering about what other agencies were doing, too. And I began to look at what not the laws from Congress, not the 3,000 regulations coming out from agencies, but the guidances, memoranda, notices, circulars, bulletins, administrative interpretations. I took a partial numerical inventory just of the ones that are labeled so-called economically significant or costing $100 million. There are at least 617 of those, but there are thousands and thousands of other notices and bulletins and circulars and things of that sort. Just as a for example in the financial sector, the St. Louis Fed, and this is apart from government collecting this data because in the same way they don't do cost-benefit analysis and they only report on that few hundred significant pieces of guidance, they don't report all of these guidances and document notices and bulletins in, in, in a um, unified place. The St. Louis Fed lists 136 pieces of significant, significant guidance in play affecting financial agencies and the Conference of State Bank Supervisors is another body that points to over 2,000 directives from government affecting the financial sector that are apart from the laws and apart from the regulations. Now, there are a lot of prominent pieces of guidance that have come out that, uh, that, that I'll put into the dark matter category. You've probably heard of the Waters of the United States rule. Um, you know, our general counsel, Sam Kasman, likes to call it the moistures of the United States rule. Well, guess what? That started out as a piece of guidance. That was not a rule that going through notice and comment. That was an interpretation that came from the um, Environmental Protection Agency. Then it ended up submitting, uh, it ended up soliciting comments and got into another scandal because it was at the same time. Uh, sort of lobbying and getting green groups to write in and say what a great thing the rule was. But there are a lot of other examples. The Labor Department, for example, had administrative interpretations, not laws, not, recommend, not regulations that went through notice and comment, but had administrative interpretations on independent contracting. You might have heard this. This was a really famous example over the last co couple of years, and also joint employment and franchising. And the new labor secretary under Trump just revoked those a couple of weeks ago. There's also HUD guidance, for example, saying that if you don't rent, if you're a landlord or a real realtor, you don't rent to someone with a criminal record, you may be violating the Fair, um, the, the, uh, Fair Housing Act. Um, everyone heard over the last couple of years about the transgender restrooms. That wasn't a law. That wasn't a regulation from agencies, but it was guidance from the Justice Department <clears throat> and um, uh, became one of the more very, very controversial uh, examples. Um, the net neutrality rule, that went through notice and comment, but guess what? Buried on page, about page 80 of that 400-page rule, there's this really ominous paragraph that says, from now on, um, before you invest in infrastructure, you need to um, 
just check with us. Just call us, and we'll we'll uh, evaluate what you're about to do. So the guidance in that sense, or threatened guidance, will be creating kind of a mother may I culture. Another example: last year, the FAA issued its rule on drones, the uh, aerial drones, and it still, even with the 600-page rule, the drones still, without getting a waiver. They still have to fly only within the line of sight and only during daylight. There can't be any nighttime hours. But I got curious about this, and so I searched through this 600-page rule, and there were at least six areas where the FAA is promising in the future to issue, not go back to Congress for a law, not issue a regulation with notice and comment, but to issue guidance on airworthiness, on pilot certification, on how high the drone needs to be before it drops off the Amazon package, licensing, all of these areas where the entire industry that's not even here yet, not even here yet, is going to be governed by guidance, by regulatory dark matter coming from the FAA. I thought that was very, very notable. Um, so there are a number of examples like that. There's a, and, you know, guidance and bulletins and notices and things of that sort are nothing new. We, we, the scholars and lawyers have debated this kind of thing for years. And a prominent exa- another prominent example is just the IRS uh, regulations because you've got the IRS code and then you've got the Treasury regulations right under that, but there are thousands and thousands of interpretive documents that the IRS puts out. And there was a GAO study on that. Now, in ter- this, this notion of regulatory dark matter and all of this excess guidance that is just swamping the amount of laws and the amount of regulation got notice from Congress. In fact, in the Senate, in the Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee, uh, Senator Lankford, Republican, and Senator Heidi Heitkamp held a hearing examining federal guidance. And they did a series of three hearings. I testified at the second one. But I was struck by the di- the bipartisan recognition that guidance has become a problem in society. It's become a new way of doing uh, nanny state regulation or intervening or agencies getting their say. And one of the members asked, the the panelists at the the first hearing was Department of Labor um, and also Department of uh, Education, which along with uh, Department of Justice had done the uh, transgender restroom order. They asked them, when you are about to undertake some initiative, how do you decide whether you're going to issue a normal notice and comment regulation on the one hand or a piece of guidance on the other? And the answer from the agencies was, we don't know. <laughs> and then, so the members concluded kind of collectively that this is a black box, uh, this, that it's a black box what agencies are doing. And so I submit to you that in a lot of ways, if, if this is the transition that the administrative state is going through, the administrative state is not appropriate to our modern era. And I think, I think this really matters now because you can't have this mother may I type of culture. You can't have government steering while the market just rose as our society and our technologies get more and more and more complex. It's just not going to be appropriate for things like drones I already mentioned, but driverless cars, which there's also guidance from uh, the uh, uh, NHTSA, National Highway Transportation Safety Administration, on that. NHTSA issuing guidance, not a law, not a regulation, on requiring phones to have a driver mode. And, of course, this has caused outrage from the consumer electronics sector and so forth. So you see what I'm getting at. 
the more complex the economy is, the more there's this inclination from the agencies to issue guidance, even if Congress hasn't enacted enabling legislation to give them power to issue normal regulations, let alone the guidance. So that's that's the concern over regulatory dark matter. But as I said at the outset of this, I'm optimistic about it. Uh, I I think, you know, as I said, capitalism is too young. It's too new for us to have gotten all of these kinds of things things right. And we always take the attitude here that, you know, most most of the world's wealth hasn't been created yet. And then my, my colleague comes back to that and says, yeah, Wayne, but most of the regulations haven't been written yet either. <laughs> and, I, and I take that to heart, and I take to heart, too, that most of the dark matter hasn't been issued either. But in terms of a body like Federal Society or like uh, some of the, uh, the uh, organizations that are being set up to examine the administrative state, Key, you always have to remember your choice is never no regulation. Laissez-faire has never meant laissez-faire has never meant that companies run around wild and do whatever the heck they want to do. You always have to choose, and politicians have to choose. Is the answer to discipline more more uh, political regulation or do competitive disciplines come into play or and, and need to come into play? For example, no company is operating in a vacuum. They always have their upstream suppliers, their downstream business customers, consumers, Wall Street, the media. All of these forces are arrayed against companies that misbehave. And that, along with what I'd said earlier about benefits actually being forms of wealth, not something that you can regulate into being all the time, um, it may be that if you're setting up an administrative approach, you're undermining real regulation because I think all these competitive forces and competitive disciplines have to come to bear uh, uh, to discipline the new sector, not doing things through the administrative state, which leads to rent-seeking and subsidies and government investments in science and distortions and just, to me, just just tremendous distortions in the marketplace. So those are some of the the concerns with regulatory dark dark matter. And, and, you know, I'm saying why I'm optimistic about long-term about doing things about this. What do we do about it in the short term? Well, it's, it, it, you see the political environment now, and a lot of you know way more about it than I do, but you, the Constitution is not coming to the rescue right at the moment. <laughs> but <laughs> what really would have to happen to deal with over-regulation and over, uh, overuse of dark matter is Congress would need to change the statutes that are generating so much of the flow in regula- in, of regulation. It would need to eliminate agencies. We have nothing like we had, like even during the Newt Gingrich, Bill Clinton era, when you had all the Republicans somewhat unified behind the notion of getting rid of the Department of Education, get ri- getting rid of the Department of Energy, getting rid of portions of the Department of Commerce. Nothing like that really exists now. Even Rick Perry, who had wanted to get rid of the Department of Energy during the debates and you know had, had that funny episode with it, he's now the head of that department. It is the case that the Trump administration is undertaking what's, uh, what it has called an executive branch reorganization campaign, and this was at such a, it, it, at such a level that there's a Mick Mulvaney memo instructing agencies on, on what to do that must be like 20 pages long. In terms of reforming at the agencies, he's done executive orders, not just the, two regulations out for everyone in and capping of costs, but he's also done 
an executive order saying that each agency basically has to have an office of no. And I've got, I mean, that's, that's just what I'm calling it, but I've got some affinity for that notion. It needs to have a body within it or an economist within it saying why the regulations are a bad idea and what things they can roll back. So the administration can do a few things on its own. You, you, kind of your analogy to that is, you know, a lot of us thought that Barack Obama's legacy uh, depended on a Hillary Clinton victory, and I think a lot of Obama and Clinton supporters thought that too. But as you can see, right now the the healthcare law is surviving. So even without a Clinton victory, that Obama initiative is surviving. Now that was a piece of that was a piece of law. But on the other hand, the the regulations and the dark matter that agencies put out tend to survive too, even though we've changed administrations. If if you if you think about the they put out uh, last year. Obama did 3,800 regulations. There were some 300 of those that were subject to being overturned by the Congressional Review Act, which is the provision. It was done actually, bipartisan. It was one of those, but one of those times when the Democrats and Republicans were working together, as they did on small business reg relief and unfunded mandates relief. But it turns out the Congressional Review Act that lets Congress overturn. Uh, sort of what you might call midnight regulations um, was a bipar- was bipartisan. It was praised by Her- Senator Harry Reid. It was praised by Senator Carl Levin. But even though 300 Obama regulations were vulnerable to being overturned by the Congressional Review Act, you might have seen in the news this year that Trump has only signed 14. So the you you get a change in administrations, you still have a lot of staying power in terms of the the legacy, and that is not just the laws, but it's also the regulations. But if that's true, if the pen and phone can it, can curtail liberty, it can also expand liberty too. And I I think that it could be the case that some of the executive orders that Trump has implemented could expand could have some lasting power in terms of the rules that they freeze or what they cut back on and things like that. So. In terms of the legislative reforms to deal with dark matter and to deal with the regulatory state, the House has passed a couple of things that were important. One was the RAINS Act, which stands for Regulations from the Executive in Need of Scrutiny. It basically would say for all of the big fat rules, the ones that are over $100 million, Congress would have to approve them before they are effective. Um, that has passed the House, and clearly, no surprise, that's got no chance of passing the Senate. There was another bill called the Midnight Rules Reform Act that would let Congress bundle resolutions of disapproval to eliminate a whole lot of Obama rules in bulk rather than having to do them one at a time as the law currently requires. The House passed that. It didn't pass the Senate. The House has also passed what's the main vehicle. In fact, we're going to have a Hill forum on this next week, the Regulatory Accountability Act. You probably know that presidents since Reagan and since have had executive orders that 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 implement procedures for reviewing regulations and doing cost-benefit analysis. Now, I know I said a lot of cost-benefit analysis doesn't get done, but at least they had those provisions in place. The Reg Accountability Act, which is the main reform vehicle right now, would codify those requirements for review of regulations, sunsetting, uh, account, not, not sunsetting, but um, more cost-benefit analysis and, and things of that sort. That's the main vehicle that has bipartisan support. Um, uh, Heidi Heitkamp, along with uh, 
uh, Joe Manchin are on, but other pieces of reform legislation that would address dark matter and regulation do have some bipartisan pedigree, which might be able to talk a little bit about too. But in uh, in short, I'll leave this with you. The, the to me, the dark matter is a growing problem. We ca- we just started cataloging it. We've gotten a lot of attention for this notion, but I think for us to 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 sort of beat back the administrative state that has gone off the rails, we really have to rethink what agency expertise really means. Do they really have expertise in these new frontiers like artificial intelligence and nanotechnology and and um, uh, driverless cars? And should they be mandating communications between driverless cars and infrastructure? They're, they're trying to do these things through guidances rather than regulations which to me is setting these frontier industries up for being regulated as if they were public utilities. And it's really ironic because the reason we had a lot of regulation and have a lot of regulation is because of presumed market failures. But if these new technologies with their GPS and locational and tracking capabilities are eliminating the very arguments that in the past led to the call the claim that there was market failure yet at this very time the agencies are jumping out ahead and trying to control and govern the um, the uh, uh, trajectory of those technologies a simple way to put that is uh oh driverless cars are coming into being in a time when governments own all the roads and uh oh drones are coming into being at a time when the federal government controls airspace, so you see what I mean, and that that leaves a perfect uh, perfect way for the agencies to just jump in and uh, and can and govern these areas. And I'm they, unfortunately they're doing it not by getting laws passed to authorize power for them, and not by passing new regulations that go through notice and comment, but often using using dark matter. So I'll just close it out by saying not not every matter is a public policy question. <laughs> not not everything requires uh, political regulation, but we need market disciplines. And I'll leave it there. And Devin, I hope hope that's helpful. <laughs> Thanks. That's terrific, Wayne. Thanks so much for those opening remarks about laws, regulations, and regulatory dark matter. I think I mean you covered a lot of ground there, and I've got quite a few questions queued up in my head. Um, but I'd like to turn it over to our audience uh, to get their questions. Um, uh, let, me, let me go ahead and go to questions now. In a moment, uh, everyone on the call is going to hear a prompt indicating that the floor mode has been turned on. If you're interested uh, in asking a question of Wayne, um, all you need to do to request the floor to speak is enter the star and then pound button on your keypad. Uh, let's open the floor. Okay, again. If you're interested in asking Wayne a question, all you need to do to request the floor is enter a star and then the pound button. Looks like we've got a, question, a couple of questions already queued up. Um, I'm hoping, though, that I can take the liberty of asking a question first, Wayne. Um, and that is, you, you mentioned some specific examples of regulatory dark matter. Um, and mm-hmm. it struck me that many of these examples that you, that you discussed were really contentious uh, once yeah. they got out into the public uh, dialogue. So, for example, you mentioned the Department of Education's transgender uh, so-called Dear Colleague letter, which essentially, uh, from what I understand, was uh, a directive um, issued by um, a staff, just some staff member at the Department of Education, that purported to hold that an anatomically male student, for example, psychologically identifies as a girl who wants to use a girl's restrooms, locker rooms, and showers, had the right to do so. 
really just a, a mid-level Department of Education staff member. Um, do you think that you know the, the, the regulatory dark matter exists to some extent to um, to to um, push this sort of policy uh, in an insulated way that's unaccountable um, to people like like Congresses? Yeah, that, well, that's what it does, and I'm not an expert in that particular one, but my understanding of it was that, dear colleague, that directive was to attempted to say that gender identity now would fall under the definition of, of uh, sex in the Civil Rights Act, and so therefore um, the, the students would have that right. It, it, it's, it's difficult to get something like that through without, without getting a lot of attention, but a lot of the guidances will attract attention, like the Waters of the U.S. rule, like the labor rules with respect to uh, to employment. Several of President Obama's memoranda, you know, there was often a lot of talk about Obama's executive orders, but it wasn't the executive orders, it was the, the memoranda. There were a lot of them directed at um, overtime pay and, uh, for, uh, and minimum wages for contractors and family leave for contractors, and some of those did end up getting significant attention but nothing was nothing got the attention like the uh, the, the transgender letter or um, uh, something that's that's that divisive but something slide through and this and when I when I was mentioning before that there were so many of these guidance documents see a lot of times we don't know what they are we can just in, we can inventory them we can tally them up but we don't know exactly what they contain Interesting example was a lot of folks heard of the the settlement with uh, with Volkswagen that uh, that EPA had over its uh, doctoring up of its emission results. Now this is a little bit different category because this is like some of the letters that companies get from the FDA and things of that sort. But even that to me is a form of of regulatory governance. But the EPA was directing Volkswagen to implement new infrastructure for. Uh, for uh, electric vehicles and charging station infrastructure and all of these sorts of things, getting basically injecting itself into the bottom level of this new complex infrastructure, about to um, potentially to take root in the in the United States. So that's the worrisome thing. It's the society is so. Yeah, I, one one book chapter I had the, the 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 title was One Nation Ungovernable. That's what worries me that because as society becomes more and more complex, the agencies have a temptation to not try to go back and get get a law passed or to issue a rule, but to do as you said, you can have a a lower level person in an agency come up with a plan work with the secretary and issue an administrative interpretation or a memorandum or something like that. We really have to watch it. And you know, they're perfect targets for us to watch it right now. We know we better keep our eyes out for what the FCC does in the wake of net neutrality if we don't end up overturning that. We know to keep an eye on this drone rule and the regulations that and the, the guidance that will, will be coming forth from that. The financial laws, um, I had seen a quote from... Uh, the, the head of the CFPB, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, from Cordray saying, you know, um, on this uh, unfair deceptive trade practices principles, we're, we're not going to issue any regulations. Um, you just need to check with us. <laughs> so, so you see, that you, you almost get to the point where they don't need to write regulations down at all. You've crea you create such a mother-may-I culture, or you have the government in so much direct control as it is, as it's 
as it is, which is certainly the case with education, as you had talked about a moment ago, that um, we run a real risk of being of just being dominated by bureaucracy in ways that we never had imagined. Thanks, Wayne. Um, uh, we've got a couple of questions queued up, but I want to just say one extra thing after before taking the first question after uh, something that you just mentioned about the v, uh, VW scandal and and, and that yeah. whole fallout. Um, we do have a paper on our website at regproject.org. It's entitled Regulating in the Shadows, How Agencies Achieve Indirectly That Which They Have No Authority to Achieve Directly, Perfect. with a section on that VW case um, and, and, ah, and okay. many others. So if anyone in the, in the audience is interested, um, you should go to the website and check out that, uh, check out that paper. So uh, thanks for mentioning that, Wayne. I think we're going to go to the first question now uh, from our audience. Caller, when you... Uh, uh, here's the prompt. You can ask your question. Perfect. Thank you. This is Tyler O'Neill with PJ Media. Uh, my question is uh, if, Mr. Cruz, you can give us a preview of this newest unified agenda, and I'd like to hear from you if it gives you hope in addressing this critical issue of regulatory dark matter, what we should look for in the preview to see whether or not it, it satisfies some of these concerns that's a, that's an excellent question i now i haven't seen what, what's in the agenda yet but i can tell you i do feel a little bit of optimism for a couple of reasons um first of all the unified agenda if people don't know it's this it's the it's twice a year technically it's supposed to come out in april and in october and once upon a time it did it came about back in the days of the paperwork of the paperwork reduction act and the agencies basically in the unified agenda are tasked with presenting their priorities now they don't have to publish in the agenda everything they're going to do um but nonetheless it's something that's useful to give a picture of what the agencies uh, have in mind what their priorities are going to be um over the past few years, the unified agenda had been delayed. It would it would come instead of April, it would come out Fourth of July weekend, or and then instead of the October edition, it would come out the weekend before Thanksgiving. I mean, you know, <laughs> you know how this goes with with government reports. And now Trump's first unified agenda is extraordinarily late if you are looking at it on that scale. But the offset to that, and we can potentially give a pass since we've had a transition in administrations, and the the frame the framework for doing the unified agenda this time is very very different because what this agenda, the spring agenda, will contain is each agency is supposed to present its plan, and this is independent agencies too, unlike the cost-benefit stuff that doesn't apply to independent agencies. The independent agencies are required to report in the unified agenda as well, as along with the executive agencies. <clears throat> but the agencies have to present in this one, at least at least this is what we're, we're hearing, and some of the preliminary uh, blurbs about this are saying, but with respect to their regulatory agendas and the two out for every one in, agencies have, by this time, supposed to have combed their archives and figured out which regulations they're going to get rid of. I had seen a report that the secretary at the Department of Interior had, had come up with dozens of rules that they were going to roll back, um, at the Department of Interior, that's the only one that I'd heard anything yet that specific on. Um, 
I had noticed that uh, Scott Pruitt had been, uh, I think, to Utah speaking. He, he, I didn't hear or see that he mentioned particular EPA regs he was talking about rolling back, but um, th- those should be part of the uh, part of the the framework too. I think what's important about this is usually, it, probably, if we had done this phone call a year ago, you probably wouldn't have asked me about the unified agenda because <laughs> nobody <laughs> nobody cared. And you you would see you know one or two reports. You'd you'd see a BNA report about it, or you know, or govexec.com.gov.com report about it, or something like that. But it just wasn't something that caught a lot of attention. But this time, given the Trump memorandum, uh, the Trump executive order. On which called for eliminating one regu- two regulations for every new one, and at the same time, net new regulatory costs must be zero. Given that directive, and given that Mick Mulvaney, has, who's the OMB director, has taken that very, very seriously, this unified agenda, I think, is going to be uh, have a lot more attention paid to it. And one thing I can tell you, just in you know, just uh, in the scope of the regulatory agenda, uh, unified agenda Re- new regulations this year uh, Trump has had a lot of problems with Congress <laughs> but I can say you know, at least in, in terms yep. of the regulatory agenda of the regulatory um, output unless it's uh, Coast Guard directives on drawbridges or back during Fourth of July Coast Guard saying how you know how close your boats could be in when you're doing your fireworks show or unless it was an FAA airworthiness directive, regulations have effectively stopped. There have been a couple of reports about Trump rules. Uh, two, these two rules that came out, um, one had to do with medical waste. I can't remember exactly what it was. And then another one, I think, was an interior rule, um, where this rule came out in violation of the of the two out for one in. And the response from the administration was, well, no, if you look at the executive order, the, the, we're talking about during the fiscal year. They can do this rule, but they've still got to get rid of two other rules. But apart from an exception or two like that, a, economically significant regulations, the big ones, are going to be way, way lower this year than, than before. I'm, I'm very sure that when I'd said at the outset that under Reagan, pages in the Federal Register and numbers of rules had both gone down by more than a third, the drop is way greater than that under Trump. I, there hasn't been anything like this in, in a couple of generations. So that makes this coming unified agenda pretty unique, and I think you'll see more um, uh, statements about it. I'm, I'm hoping to grab, grab it early tomorrow. It should be posted online. It's a database where they um, a landing page that contains databases with all the, the figures. And I'm hoping to do a quick uh, burst analysis of it tomorrow morning. Thanks a lot, Wayne. We'll be looking forward to that, and thanks, Mr. O'Neill, for your question. Um, I'm going to tell the audience again that uh, if you'd like to ask a question, just enter star and then the pound button on your telephone keypad. We do have another question queued up, but I'd like to take this opportunity to just make one quick announcement, and that is that our next free lunch podcast call is going to take place on Thursday, August 10th at 12 o'clock noon. The call is going to be an in-depth review of University of Colorado professor Dr. Joseph Postel's new book, Bureaucracy in America. Not Democracy in America, Bureaucracy in America. Um, Again, mark your calendars. Our next free launch podcast call is going to take place uh, on Thursday, August 10th at 12 o'clock noon. Uh, Same time, uh, same phone number. Okay, I'm going to get to our next caller here. Uh, Caller, when you hear the prompt, you can ask your question. 
Yeah, my name is Derek Ward from Kansas City, and uh, we've okay. been doing a lot of work with uh, drones recently, so I have a kind of a couple of questions along that line. One of the things I've noticed is that a lot of the regulations, you know, not only are not formal rules, but in some cases the FAA has delegated responsibility to third parties. There's a requirement for hobbyists that are flying that they comply with the safe practices of community-based organizations, uh, for example. In other cases, they've applied rules that are derived from formal rulemaking that allows the FAA, for example, to uh, place temporary flight restrictions in a particular area, but when you look at the FAA bulletin, that temporary restriction is made permanent. Uh, so I guess my question is, is if, if somebody is cited or has adverse action taken against them by the FAA, how, is the court, how are the courts likely uh, to, to rule on these issues? I mean, in the first case where there's a delegation to a, a third private party to come up with the rules, and in the other cases where it's clearly contrary to the rules' uh, express purpose. I tell you, I, I I wish I could say how the courts would respond. I I just want to um, reiterate the worry I have here, and I think it may very well be that the the drone issue is one of the most important test cases of this. Is the all that's happening now? There, the agency is doing case by case waivers for commercial use, and we have this system in place now for individuals to. Uh, be certified pilots if they want to, if the drone is over a certain size. But the over the overarching problem is, and you mentioned uh, community um, community solutions. The overarching problem is the FAA taking charge here and even denying local solutions. You know, there were there was proceedings involved where local police forces um, would have had some say in how drones get treated and. My understanding is that the the, F, the FAA shot that down. I wish I had done more Hill meetings or that there had been more engagement by the free market and by the legal community because I'll tell you, earlier when I mentioned that about the the, the, the primary evolution that we have to do in, in free societies and free, is make sure that we define property rights appropriately. Now, I know airspace is complex, but I'm telling you, if you could imagine, not that you would want it, <laughs> but you could imagine the, the sky packed like a neutron star with drones, with, with drones using different corridors, with, with neighborhoods and communities and cities and fake towns like the Market Common at Myrtle Beach or, or, or these, these villages that arise coming up with new rules and, and standards by which drones operate, and given that we can control where they fly and how they fly, and we can also have legal standards with respect to protection if someone does something wrong with their drone, um, you know, there's even vicious animal laws that you can use to apply to drones and, and the way um, and any damage they do. There are lots of common law options for, for approaching these problems too. But instead, what we're doing is the FAA is directing, the directive is to roll drones into the commercial airspace. And without thinking about property rights questions in any significant way, and my, real, my worry about that is kind of like what happened with, uh, in the early days of regulation of telecommunications or the regulation of railroads. You have certain parties who are very good at doing the negotiations and getting the laws turned to their favor, and you could imagine, you know, the um, 
the Googles of the world or the Amazons of the world getting hold of this process and getting favorable drone rules and regulations that are good for them but are not necessarily good for everybody else or someone who would, would have been an upstart and come along with a better way of dealing with questions of drone navigation and safety. And, you know, there are different ways of answering questions. I mean, it, it, should a drone fly over Disney World? I, I don't know, but whatever the answer is, you don't have to have the same answer everywhere. And I wish we had... The, a big problem is I wish we had uh, that members of Congress had a vocabulary for defending large-scale, complex free enterprise. Do you, do you know what I'm saying? It, it's, not, it's not enough just to pull the drones into the commercial airspace. You've got to rethink what commercial airspace or pr and privately owned airspace means in an era when finally we're capable of defining property rights in that new realm. This is, it's a similar problem we have with respect to something like net neutrality on the Internet. We don't want the federal government deciding and picking winners and losers between content, the content sector and the infrastructure sector, especially when they overlap so much like they do. But instead, the, the, unfortunately, the, the members of Congress don't have the vocabulary to articulate those kinds of property rights questions. I would like to know more. You, you, I don't have your contact information and people who are interested in it like you, but as I do the next iteration of Dark Matter, if you have links to the kinds of questions you were talking about, about the, the community-based things or these other potential problems with you know, lower-level folks making these decisions and, and circumventing Congress, I would love to be able to tell a better story because the story I've given you is merely Wayne Cruz noticing that in the 600-page drone rule, there are at least eight areas where they're going to be issuing guidance. It's best practices, risk assessment, load, um, guidance on not dropping objects, um, advisories in training, pre-flight checks, vehicle condition, uh, operation, conditions for safe operations, guidance on your aerodynamics for your drones. I mean, it, guidance on visual scanning. I mean, if there's virtually everything that the drone sector does is going to be second-guessed with guidance coming out of the FAA. And so you know, you know more about this issue clearly than me, but you can see I have an interest in it. So <laughs> I, would be, I would be most appreciative of uh, getting more information to help tell this story because drones might be a signature case of this dark matter issue. So thank, thanks, Wayne, for that response. And, and caller, I hope that answered your question. And uh, especially if you're interested in, in uh, contacting Wayne or, or getting information to him, um, you can email that to us at the Regulatory Transparency Project at hello at regproject.org, and we can get that to Wayne. Uh, sounds like Wayne would be right. very interested. Um, a couple of other things. One, I, I'm not sure whether I mentioned or not that the caller asked about how the courts might rule on various things. Uh, Wayne, despite the fact that you've been around lawyers for a long period of time now, you're not a lawyer yourself. Nope. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, uh, but drones and how, how courts are going to rule on different regulatory aspects or different regulatory uh, areas is something that we're very much interested in uh, with the Regulatory mm -hmm. Transparency Project. Uh, and in fact, we're so interested that we have uh, one of our 12 groups uh, working on IT and emerging technology. We have um, quite a few experts in that group um, or, or, or individuals in that group who are experts in drone technology and, and policy. Uh, one of those people uh, being Greg McNeil, who is the co-founder of um, 
uh, a company that's looking at mapping airspace uh, uh, and ensuring that drones can eventually uh, take flight uh, around the country in, in various Perfect. ways. Um, and Greg is going to be doing one of our podcasts for us on a couple of different topics related to drones, including Drone Federalism Act and Drone Innovation Act. So Excellent. be on the lookout for those things. Um, so thanks, thanks again, Wayne. I know that we have another caller queued up. Um, I want to uh, remind everyone on the phone that if you if you have a question, you can hit star and then pound, and we'll we'll get to you um, very quickly because we're coming to the end of things here. I want to make one last um, announcement for uh, the RTP, anyway, um, and that is that we have our very first in-person panel event scheduled for Wednesday, August 9th, from 12 o'clock noon until 1:15 p.m. at the law firm. Crowell and Mooring in uh, Washington, D.C. The event's on the topic of occupational licensing, antitrust, and innovation. It's going to feature five different experts, including the acting chair of the Federal Trade Commission, uh, Maureen Olhausen. That's not all. Get this. The event is completely free to attend, um, open to the public. While there's no such thing as a free lunch, lunch is going to be on us as well. Um, the event's going to be both live and available via teleconference. Um, space is limited live, so... We're cutting off registration once we've reached capacity. Um, I encourage you to hurry to our website at regproject.org to learn more about that event and to register uh, for the event under our news tab. Again, that's in-person panel event with several different experts on the topic of occupational licensing, antitrust, and innovation, including uh, the Honorable Maureen Olhausen, August 9th, 12 o'clock noon to 1.15 p.m. at the law firm Crowell & Mooring in Washington, D.C. Okay. Uh, thanks for humoring me, uh, everyone. I'm going to go to our next caller now. Caller, when you hear the prompt, you can ask your question. Wayne, it's uh, David Emerson at the uh, Federal Society in Berkeley. Hey. And first, I just want to thank you for your efforts and for CEI's efforts over uh, a number of years. Thank you for all the great you, work. And I, I have a, uh, a comment, which I think is a, somewhere in there is a question. I'd like to see if you can address it. It has to do with almost like a structural matter having to deal with the, the private sector responding to the types of regulations that you've been mentioning. And yeah. you know, one of the challenges that I see there is that often a, a private entity is a repeat player in front of government agencies. And government agencies have an enormous amount of discretion and they have long memories at times. So even though there might mm -hmm. be an opportunity to challenge a regulation, you know, and to win the battle, uh, the question is, is you know, are you effectively you know losing the war by taking yourself and putting a nice bullseye on yourself for the other regulatory mm -hmm. agencies or that agency to go after you at? So there's there's that aspect of it as well. There's also just the the, the business judgment of deciding whether to just roll over, comply with the regulation versus fighting it. And these fights are very expensive and they take years and they add uncertainty to the business model, um, which results in a lot of ramifications for us, funding and customers and whatnot. So mm -hmm. the tendency is to just roll over and play play ball with the agencies rather than to fight them. And, you know, the last comment I want to make, which are all kind of related to each other, is that e even if there is a victory in one particular regulation, it, it seems like it's a very small victory compared to the onslaught of regulations that are coming at, at companies. And the largest companies, for example, banks, large banks, actually, you know, I think are, are somewhat gleeful the more regulation there is because they have the in-house legal teams, they have the budget, mm -hmm. 
they're profitable, they can handle it. And, and they may view these regulations as giving them an unfair advantage over their smaller competition, which can't handle it. So there's a number of factors in the private sector which you know, are all aligning themselves against the fight for against these regulations. I'd like to I'd like yeah. to get your thoughts on how, you know what we suggestions and thoughts about how we can deal with that. Yeah, I think I think that's a very 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 important point. There, you can divide regulations up, you know, into into paperwork, economic regulation, health and safety, environmental regulation, labor regulation, transportation, and sometimes that helps if you can get a if you can get some footing with respect to dealing with regulations in a certain category sometimes you can roll things back but unfortunately it's just like you say companies are afraid to stand up and a lot of times they will are on board with the, with a regulatory enterprise that's what worries me so much about you know even though i you know i talked about the optimism i feel and i think that over time you know the the trends toward liberty are expanding but you can always have setbacks. And unfortunately now, the setbacks where businesses may tend to play ball or where some of them even may go along with regulation happen to be in areas that matter a heck of a lot, like the drones we talked about and like artificial intelligence and robotics. And you can see how those latter two issues are driving now calls for uh, uni- basic universal income and things like that, and you, you you can just you can't even begin to imagine the political predation around a concept like that. Because even if we could transfer to artificial intelligence and robotics, and it were were to be uh, just as smooth as possible and very very little disruption, it's too irresistible politically for the politicians to stay away from it. And we've had the same issue with the ref- with the um, interventions in the financial sector, same interventions now with respect to the the healthcare sector, and of course we got it with net neutrality and the content providers getting together to uh, to lobby for that. There are too many tendencies in the business sector for regulation, and everybody and everybody's familiar with all the public choice arguments and all of the reasons why that is. But occasionally things do align where there's a general interest in rolling some things back or at least preventing adding the new. Um, I'm hoping, you know, from the Unified Agenda report we hear tomorrow, we see tomorrow, we'll get some of that. But I do think that it's important for certain sectors like tech and whether they do it through their trade groups or or what have you or, or the transportation sector to look at ways to roll back the regulatory enterprise, as I said, I think it can only be done by, you have to repeal agencies, you have to revisit statutes, you have to cut budgets, you have to do things that are extremely harsh. And as I said, the Constitution isn't coming to the rescue in the near term, but it is the case that there's considerable business support behind something like, say, the Regulatory Accountability Act. But you know, I, I I completely agree with where you're coming from, and I say this, the same kind of thing all the time in my my writings, my, my Forbes column, and what have you. I want there to be a major revolution toward uh, free market reform and away from the political predation that is regulation, to me. But um, it's uh, it, it's it's quite difficult uh, to get there, and 
even though I want to see these reforms that are happening in Congress, unfortunately I have to admit that the administrative state doesn't really have a lot to fear from them. Um, so we we have to keep pressing, but you know the, the longer the trends are toward toward more freedom, and a big part of the job in the short term. My other title here is director of technology studies. My the other important job is to wall off the future from the bad kinds of regulatory decisions that have been made in the past. And if we can do that, we can take some of the lessons learned from leaving drones or robotics or driverless cars, from leaving those alone or, or, or preparing the way for liberalization in those areas, and then apply those lessons back to legacy industries like electricity and telecom and so forth. But um, I, I, I certainly agree, and you know, some, you know, in my, in my ba- more despondent moments when I'm putting together 10,000 commandments or dark matter, I can get pessimistic. But I don't remain that way. I think there's there's global competition issues and things of that sort that press against getting too ambitious. But uh, we will see. Thank you for the question. Yes, thank you so much for the question, and thanks, Wayne, for the response. Um, as everyone can tell now, we've run up past our allotted time for the hour. Um, so I, I hope, Wayne, that maybe you have a couple of closing remarks for us. I want to say before um, before you um, do that that uh, we welcome anyone's feedback by email. Um, I mentioned this email address earlier, but I'll mention it again. It's hello, just the word H-E-L-L-O, at regproject.org, R-E-G, project.org. Um, there you can send any remarks that you may have um, uh, for, for Wayne or for us or any sort of feedback, anything, uh, we welcome it at hello at regproject.org. Uh, Wayne, are there a couple of, couple of words you'd like just to a, uh, end with? Yeah, just a, couple, just a couple of quick things. I had, um, you know, the, the Internet lets us crowdsource things a lot, and I was doing that with respect to an entrepreneurship paper I'm working on. And I think we can do a little bit of the same thing with respect to regulatory dark matter we have taken the first stabs at cataloging this, but I do think we need to do a better job quantifying it. And those on the line who have an interest in it or who know of uh, of, good, of good sources, uh, please let me know. Uh, getting in touch in the in the way that you'd mentioned a while ago, Devin, but that would uh, that would be ideal. I think we need we, the 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 success and you know the, the last question, the, the 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 concern about regulation not going away, and in, in my understanding of that. Um, in agreement with that, we I can at least tell you right now that when the Trump, uh, when the new administration came in and the freeze on regulations took hold, and this wasn't unique to Trump, every other president in the recent uh, recent uh, cycles has done this too. The first thing they do is they freeze their predecessor's regulations. Trump did that too, but guess what? He also included dark matter, at least the so-called economically significant. And when Trump issued the two-out-for-one-in executive order, guess what? It also included regulatory dark matter. And I mentioned the hearings taking place that are dealing with agency guidance and so forth. So it's an issue that's getting traction. And if we can shine light on it that way, um, we stand a much better chance of putting the brakes on it. Because as I said, there are just a handful of laws and then several thousand regulations, but potentially lots and lots more dark matter. And that's what we have to address. Um, in, I, in last line, as our uh, as Fred here, Fred Smith, our founder, always says, the Constitution isn't perfect, but it's better than what we have now, and we all just have to work together on ways of trying to restore those liberties or introduce them anew. Thanks a lot.
Wayne, thanks so much for being here. <laughs> really great, insightful remarks. Uh, really terrific. Um, I want to thank everyone that's uh, that's on the call or who's listening to uh, the podcast now. Thanks for joining. Um, we hope to see you all again on Thursday, August 10th at 12 o'clock noon for our next installment uh, of Free Lunch. See you then. On behalf of the Federalist Society's Regulatory Transparency Project, thanks for tuning in to Free Lunch. As always, you can subscribe on iTunes and Google Play to get new episodes of Free Lunch when they're published. Also, visit our website at regproject.org. That's R-E-G project.org. There, we regularly upload content in addition to our podcasts, such as short videos and papers. And you can join the discussion by sharing your story of how regulation has personally affected you. Until next time, remember, there's no such thing as a free lunch. This has been a FedSoc audio production. 